had met Martin about five years ago, and I've been part of his team, Jubilee Plus, for about four years. Um, Jubilee Plus has really shaped us as a church, really been very influential in my life, but also in Paul's life and the elders, and really a lot of what we're doing today in terms of care for the poor has come from Jubilee Plus, but specifically Martin's influence. And he's an outstanding team leader. He is an outstanding boss to work for. I can say that I work for him one day a week. Um, and I think he's probably more committed to equipping the church to care for the poor than anyone else I know. Um, he's a guy who really practices what he preaches. He has so much experience personally of caring for people in need. And he's not only a great boss, he's been a good friend to me. He's been a great father figure in my life over the last few years. But he's also really built friendship with Paul in particular. And like I said, has really influenced us as a church. He's someone who really loves the spirit of God and really loves the Bible as well. So can we give him a really, really warm welcome as he comes up to speak to us this morning? You are very kind. Thank you. It's uh, lovely to be here again. Been here once before. Um, I also share a love of running, by the way. And I know that it's catching on in this church like a bit of a virus, isn't it, at the moment? All this marathonitis, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I have, I have a support group, you know, to help me with my running. I do the 5K park run in my own town. And I have uh, my, my, the youngest member of my support group is my granddaughter who occasionally comes uh, and cheers me on from the side. She doesn't really understand exactly what's going on. So on the first occasion that her mum brought her down and I was running and laboring under the pressure, she cried out to me from the sidelines as I ran past her on one of the laps, Grandad, you're 11th. <laughs> now this was a revelation to me, I can tell you. I was at least 70th at that point. And as I was going around, I was thinking, how did she come to that conclusion? I suddenly realized she'd heard someone else say it to someone earlier in the race, and she just repeated the same thing to me. <laughs> Later on, she, she spoke to her mum, my daughter, and uh, she said very wistfully, I don't think granddad's going to win, is he? <laughs> so she's backing me up all the way. So I'll back you up all the way. And just a quick word to Natalie. I hope you're not doing the marathon during the evening service. Um, I hope you'll get around a little bit quicker than that. No, by the, you know, I'm sure she will. She's been training. We've had a great weekend. Thank you for receiving uh, my ministry. This morning, I want to do one very simple thing. I want to address unequivocally and as directly as I can the question that underlies this one aspect of your mission to the poor, it's a key part of your vision statement in the church, I understand. Something that we have to work out biblically because we are a Bible-based church fundamentally and I believe everything we do has to come out of the scripture. We have to address any sense of ambiguity and ambivalence that still lingers, not necessarily here, but it might do in some of our hearts, but it lingers in the church generally as to what is the real place of social action, caring for the poor, in the core ministry of the church. There's still a lingering feeling in some places, this is a, an extra that enthusiasts do. These are projects that people get involved with because 
their, their, their leaders sort of um, are enthusiastic in that particular town or, or city, or this is something that has more application in Africa or Asia than it does here uh, in the UK. And, and this is something that perhaps been, we've been socially conditioned by the environment around us and the needs around us to suddenly think, oh, we ought to do something, because secular people are saying the church ought to do something. Have you ever come across those lingering thoughts that lie in the background of some Christian thinking? And the only way we can address that is not to talk about our society and the needs. We can do that endlessly, and there's a lot to be said. But we need to go back to the scriptures, and we need to look at the scriptures afresh. And there are a number of ways we can do it. The most obvious one is to look at the example of Jesus. We could spend all morning doing that. We could look into the Old Testament and see the amazing things and provision for those in need that were built into the law of Moses. But I'm going to do something different this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little narrative of the beginning of the book of Acts on the understanding that the formation of the church in those early days involved the uh, evident leading of the Holy Spirit to build the DNA of the church through the experience of things that actually happened in the early days which gave them experience and insight and guidance into the sort of churches that they should be building. Some of it had been made clear by the Lord Jesus, but he also made it clear to the apostles that the Holy Spirit would be continuing to lead them even after he had ascended and there'd be more truth that'd be coming to fill out the picture so they knew what sort of church that they were building. And so one of the best ways of identifying how that happened is to go back to the narrative of the book of Acts. And I'm just going to run you through a couple of things and we're going to come to a, a, a key point at the end of the talk and rather unusually the text I'm going to give you is going to come at the end of the talk and not at the beginning. So you'll have to wait and see where that text is. At the beginning, on that amazing day of Pentecost, we all know the Spirit came down in power on those gathered Jews. They come from all over the ancient world, from the Middle East areas, where we would call Syria and Iraq and around there and Arabia. They come from all over the Roman world, all over Judea and Samaria and Galilee, and they come and they gathered in Jerusalem for this great feast of Pentecost, and then the Spirit came down on this hugely large gathered Jewish congregation, and uh, many thousands were born again on that very first day. That's well known. Very shortly after that, something happened of, really of real interest to us that I want you to think again about. You'll probably remember the story in Acts 3. Peter and his colleague John were going up to the temple to pray. And the route into the temple was the best place for the beggars because that's where the human traffic was. That's where the people were going. They were all going to worship God. And there was a man there who's described in Acts 3 as lame from birth, from the beginning, permanently lame, begging. And you remember the extraordinary way that Peter saw him as he asked for money. He didn't have any money in his pocket. But you remember what he said. He said that he had something else to offer. And in the name of Jesus, 
he raised the man to his feet. He had never walked. And that staggers me. But in that moment, he lost his income. His sole source of income, to the best of our knowledge, was through begging. And he joined the church without an income. That's an obvious deduction from the text. Because he wasn't going to carry on begging. I can't imagine him carrying on begging for money. He went around leaping and proclaiming the incredible miracle that happened. But he had an economic need. There must have been many others like that. And many who believed in that Jerusalem church were the poor in the city. And many others who believed in that Jerusalem church had an economic need for another reason. They didn't even live there. They'd actually come for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Then they became believers, and they stayed around for longer. They didn't even have a home to live in. They were away from their families. They weren't earning an income, so they had an economic need as well. And shortly after that in the Jerusalem church, persecution came and some people were kicked out, some people were taken out of their jobs, and so they had an economic need as well. So right back in the Jerusalem church, it depends how you read the text and how many layers you look into it. We can see the miracles, we can see the baptisms, we can see the discipleship, we can see the glory cloud, we can see the great preaching, and those things are absolutely wonderful and we should celebrate them, but suddenly an economic issue arises. And not only that, in the church, there were different social groups and they didn't get on well with each other. Have you ever heard of that before? Sure, it doesn't happen in Hastings, Paul. It's never happened in Hastings. But you know the Jews, well, there's two Jews and there's three opinions, as my Jewish friends often tell me. So they don't always get on with each other. And there were the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. They had different cultures, different language, and they were all mixing together. And they had a bit of an argument about the widows in the church. Some of the ones who were in one cultural group, a little bit favored over the other cultural group, a little bit forgotten. And they, weren't, they were being forgotten in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostles had to actually appoint some people to help people in the church who were having a bit of an economic need. Are you beginning to see a little bit of a subtext here in the scripture? There's an issue of need and poverty even at the very beginning. Even when the glory cloud is so evident. Even when miracles are taking place every day. And Peter are bringing the sick out onto the street so that uh, pe people are, so that Peter's shadow can fall across them. There's an incredibly miraculous thing going on, but still there's an economic issue even within the church at the very beginning, before we've even moved out of Jerusalem. Two things happen. One is spontaneous and one is organized. Spontaneously, people in the church are moved to give very sacrificially, sometimes even to sell their possessions and even their land. A man called Barnabas was one example. You can read it in the text. And for some of the needs in the church, there needed to be something organized. So we see an interesting aspect here. Even in the Jerusalem church, we have spontaneous sharing, one with another, and we have the organization of relief for people in need. And we haven't even gone beyond the perimeters of the church community, and those things have become but what we see, the Holy Spirit led the church at the very beginning 
to have a focus and a generosity to those in poverty around us. Before anything else had happened, this bit of DNA of Christianity has been birthed by the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. As time passed, persecution came, the church had to leave Jerusalem very very much, but Peter was operating in, in and around Jerusalem, and lots of churches were planted in the immediately surrounding area, which we call Judea. It's the district around Jerusalem. And I want to just pick up a little incident here, because I'm just following through the anecdotes and the little insights of Acts, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the church. I wonder whether you remember in Acts chapter 9 that Peter went on a little tour. He traveled around, it says. And he was visiting the churches that had been planted. And here we're talking about five or eight or ten years after the Jerusalem church had been founded. This is the immediate period. These are some of the very same people because they've been kicked out of Jerusalem and they went to the nearby towns and villages. And it looks like churches are popping up everywhere. And Peter's the apostolic leader and he's traveling around. And in one place um, called Lydda, there was a man called Aeneas and he, uh, uh, and he was... Uh, miraculously healed, and then the people down in a town called Joppa, just by the coast, um, they, they came rushing to Peter because something terrible had happened in Joppa. One of the disciples, a lady called Dorcas, some of you will know the story, had suddenly died. Listen to what it says about her. Acts 9, verse 36. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Why was that? Well, no doubt she had a compassionate heart. The Holy Spirit's putting the DNA in the early church and it just pops up in it just an ordinary disciple who's otherwise indistinguishable from anyone else in that little church in Joppa. But she was always doing good and helping the poor. And not only that, she died rather suddenly. And as the, as the disciples from Joppa said, Peter, Peter, come with us. We want you to come. This lady's just died. She's there in the upper room uh, of the house. We've laid out the body. We're going to be burying her soon. Please come and pray. Could God do something miraculous? And as they got to the room, not only did they see this lady called Dorcas or Tabitha in the uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, Dorcas in the Greek. Um, not, not only did they see her, but they, they're there with, with tears in their eyes. They said, look, Peter. Don't, don't look just at the body. Look at these clothes. Robes and other clothes. That's what she made. She was ready to give these away, but she died before she even had the opportunity to give them away. This is a woman of, of incredible, incredible making clothes for people in need. DNA of the early church from a little incidental comment in the narrative. And of course, when we read that narrative, what we notice is something incredible. Peter remembers 
what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. Peter was one of the only apostles who were the three resurrections that Jesus performed, incidentally. That's another story. And he spoke in a similar way. So really, when you read that story, obviously, that's the first thing you think about. It's the first thing I think about. But what I'm trying to do with you is to weave, uh, to, to draw out some of the deeper threads that are in the narrative. We're not weaving anything into it. It's just sitting there. It's just that we didn't notice it properly because we're looking for something else. He is one of the first people described in the New Testament as a disciple. This is a disciple. And what does a disciple do? She gives her time for the poor and needy, and she makes clothes for the people who can't afford to buy the clothes down at the Jewish market in the port of Joppa. Let's move on. The gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles, Cornelius, the Ethiopian eunuch. And Jewish believers begin to move north from Jerusalem, many, many miles out of Jewish territory, beyond Samaria, beyond Galilee, beyond Judea, north, 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 until they get to the great city of Antioch. And because they knew that the gospel was beginning to go to the Gentiles, they'd heard about Cornelius, they started speaking to the Gentiles, or Greek speakers. And they began to produce the first ever church that was multicultural. And if we turn over to Acts 11, what we find is this. Here's just another little snapshot. Isn't it interesting when you just read a story and you see what's in the story? Here's a little, little snapshot. There was a prophet. His name was Agabus, and he had some mates, and they came up from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is a long journey. And he got before the whole church in Antioch, like I'm here before you today, as a visitor, and he came, and this prophet Agabus said um, to the church in Antioch, the Holy Spirit saying to me, there's going to be a great famine across the whole of the Roman world. There's going to be an economic circumstance that's going to affect all the churches. And he had a sense, uh, and they had a sense that it was going to affect particularly the churches in Judea, which already had some economic problems for other reasons. And so the apostles and the leaders, they heard the prophecy that in the world around there was going to be economic pressure so what did they do? Did they have a seminar? Did they commission a study group? They said, church, next week and the week after, we're going to take up a village. And we're going to send it down to Judea and down to Jerusalem because we, we feel that's going to be the worst affected area. And so immediately we find in the DNA of the church, not just thinking about helping people in their local church. They're not just thinking like Dorcas of helping the poor in the community indiscriminately. They're thinking we must help the poor in other parts of the body of Christ where suffering comes. We must bring help and support to them. This is just in the narrative. No one's been officially teaching this as a primary doctrine in the church at this point. Up, as far as we can tell, we don't have any evidence of that. But what the church in Antioch was beginning to do was what all the Jewish churches had been doing under Peter's leadership 
and the other apostles' leadership. It was in the Jewish culture to help the poor. And so it was an easy thing for them to build into their church lives, relative, relatively speaking. Let's fast forward a bit further. Are you still with me, by the way? This is making sense. This is the narrative. Now, of course, in Antioch, something else remarkable happened. Paul was there. Barnabas was there. They had a number of other really significant leaders. They had a strong church. They were growing. There was evangelism going on. People were believing. It was a multicultural church. It was a gifted church. Things were going well in Antioch. And one day the leaders gathered, Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, and they gathered, and then the Holy Spirit began to speak to this church in Antioch and say, your ministry is not just for the city of Antioch. You've got to separate some of your leaders. You've got to send them off to the mission that I've called them to. And Paul had already known on the road to Damascus that he was heading towards the Gentile world, and he knew what that meant. And they decided that Paul and Barnabas should be sent off, and they were sent off to an area which we would call Turkey, sometimes called Asia Minor, sometimes called Galatia. And so off they went. They were commissioned. The Holy Spirit um, was commissioned them. The hands were laid on. And off they went by boat. And off they went from Antioch. And they started what we call the first missionary tour, the first church planting movement as such, formally constituted into the Gentile world, started in Antioch that day. The, the Jews had done it. The Jewish apostles had done it in Judea and in Samaria and in Galilee under Peter's leadership. But now suddenly the Holy Spirit was saying, okay, that's... That's all very well for them, but now we're going to go right into that Gentile territory. We're going to start planting the churches. Paul and Barnabas travel around. They plant a church here and here and here. There are problems along the way, and we're not going into all that. But they manage to establish a number of churches. And after a period of time, they come back to Antioch, and they reported to the church, you sent us off to do this. Well, guess what happened? We've actually planted churches. Not only that, we've actually appointed elders. In some of those in, in those churches we've got them established they're growing there's been some persecution there's been some difficulty some of the jewish groups gave us a hard time some of the gentiles scratched their heads and didn't know which god we were talking about but anyway we've planted the church the gospel is moving absolutely directly into the gentile world it's no longer just a bit of an add-on to judaism here is the gentile mission full-blown off we go These churches are what we might call the Galatian churches. They're in an area we call Galatia, one of the Roman provinces. Now let's fast forward once more. As time passed, Peter with his team amongst the Jewish churches and Paul with his team in the Gentile churches had a number of issues to make sure that they kept the strands together, that they didn't have like a Jewish Christianity uh, over here and a Gentile Christianity over here. They had to decide what they were going to do about where the law of Moses fitted in and all those things. And they had a big council in Jerusalem and they sorted all that out. But Peter had another concern. And he and Paul had a strategic meeting Paul and Barnabas had a meeting with Peter and some of the apostles. I'm changing Bibles here because I'm going to the official text I'm putting on the screen. And you are an ESV church, which is a real revelation to me because I'm an NIV church. 
but I have the ESV. I've already got one of your elders. Just so I don't misquote anything. But there was an extraordinary meeting. Paul went up to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and to try and work out what God was doing. They had a long conversation. They blessed each other. They agreed they were preaching the same message. But Peter had one concern. A very real concern for Paul's churches. He'd not visited them. He didn't know exactly what was going on. And if we put the text up on the screen now, please. Uh, the lady at the back has been waiting for this moment. I told her she had to keep awake right up until towards the end of the talk for the one slide I'm using. You know, it's hard work when there's just one slide. I mean, if you've got 70 slides, then you've got to be on, the, on your toes all the time. Maybe that happens here, I don't know. But I'm just using one. James, Cephas, that's Paul, uh, sorry, Peter, that's his other name. James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, that's Paul, and gave me the right hand of fellowship, and gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised, of course, meaning the Jews. And it's verse 10. You've heard the verse before, but this is the verse I'm landing on today. Only, they ask us, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Oh. Is that the NIV? No one said they were going to play that trick on me. I'm trying to be politically correct. But I'm not going to be politically correct anymore because I'm deeply relieved if I can go back to the NIV. Here it is, you see. This is the sacred text. Don't tell Andrew Wilson I said that. Uh, by the way, when I am teaching the Bible, I always it's incumbent upon teachers, if they know anything about the original languages, to go behind any English translation and never idolize any particular one. So you know I'm jesting with you. Um, I think you've probably got the NIV there. Shall we try it out and see? Let me read what I've got here and see if, if you're, if you're, if you're um, up to the mark on your uh, slides. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Oh, we're okay. And they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked us was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. Why did Peter have this concern? That's the interesting thing. He had worked exclusively with the Jewish churches and he had built into the DNA of those churches, as we saw in the early part of the talk, that caring for the poor was not an optional extra to the gospel. We saw it in Jerusalem. We saw it with Dorcas, just to give you some examples. We saw what the Jerusalem church did. Peter was leading that church at the time. He had not visited Paul's churches. He had not been to those Gentile cities. And his fear was this. If we don't 
build churches on the foundational principle that we're remembering the poor in every single cultural context that the church will go to in the Gentile world, we will not be planting authentic New Testament churches in the model that the Lord Jesus would want us to. Paul, can you assure me that you're doing that? I haven't been to your churches, but you're my brother. I trust you. Please assure me that you will never, ever plant a church where you don't remember the poor and build it into the DNA of the church. And Paul said, Peter, we're on the same page. I wouldn't dream of doing it. The very thing that Paul wanted to do. It was just a reassurance that Peter needed. But in that moment, we discover an apostolic injunction that came out of the experience of the Spirit leading the early church in many different cultural contexts, which was ministry to the poor is central to the New Testament church. That could mean caring for those in the church who are in particular need. What it almost certainly meant was also caring for other churches, remembering the poor in other places. And what it also almost certainly meant is considering the poor in the community that the church has planted who are not yet evangelized or not yet part of the church. They are part of the mission of the church and their economic and social issues are a priority for the church in that community. And that's what Peter and Paul agreed in that great day. And they said, we will remember the church wherever the gospel goes. Amongst the Jews and amongst the Gentiles. And in those days, according to sociologists and historians, in any Roman or Greek city, approximately 50% of the population would be economically vulnerable or in poverty. 50% of the population economically vulnerable or in poverty. It was no mean feat to consider their needs. But God gave it to the church that we should do that. So I'm sharing this with you simply to relaying or lay the foundation biblically as firmly as we possibly can. That if we as a church here in Hastings, we as a movement in the New Frontiers wider family, focus on this area, this isn't a novelty, this isn't a speciality, this isn't a phase, this isn't through pressure from society. The DNA of the church that God wanted and Christ leads as head of the church is such that we should be remembering the poor in any way that the Spirit leads us to be in any context where we have a living church. That's the foundation that we're building upon. I believe that it's the foundation that elders would affirm such a foundation attracts the blessing of God in remarkable ways. 
Such a foundation accounts for grace of God. Such a foundation brings salvation. Such a foundation brings creative creativity. Such a foundation draws on gifts of the body of Christ, whether it's in your workplace where it's applicable. It's not just the ministries of the church. It's the workplace too and the community you live in. But it's also the ministries of the church. Wherever I go in the country, the churches are rediscovering this theology. But very often this scripture is quoted without giving the full context. And it loses a little bit of its power. I give you the context so you can see what's happened. The very churches that Paul started planting in the Gentile, in the Gentile world, Peter said, Ah, oh, Paul, you make sure you don't forget the poor in this community. As soon as he planted the church, those communities become your immediate focus. Christ is there, the Spirit is there, the people are there. And that's what we live to be. In a moment, we're going to just stand together before God. I'm not going to make an altar call as such, but I do want to go back in a moment into a reverential moment of worship to the Lord, where we ourselves can, if we're able, to, or need to, to either realign our understanding to the scriptures a little bit more precisely if we need to do that, or if we don't need to do that, to reconfirm our commitment to say, I'll get behind this drive in this church because of the scriptural mandate, not just because of the elders' leading. Both are important, but we need the scriptures to underline everything that we do. This is happening all over the country. God is bringing great blessing in the process. And we're entering into a period in our nation when economic shaking will increase. I believe many issues are coming to the surface that are going to demand the urgent attention of the body of Christ. But if we don't get the biblical foundation in place, we either won't address it, or when we do it, we'll do it from a point of weakness rather than strength. The strength comes from the scriptures, and the spirit endorses the scriptures and gives the leading to each congregation and each town. Let's stand together before God. Let's have the musicians, please. We're going to sing one of those beautiful songs we sang earlier on again at my request in a moment. Let's pray first, shall we? Please open to the Holy Spirit as you are able. Submit your understanding to the scriptures. Open your heart to what he might call you to do or to be. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for wonderful way you lived your life. We thank you that you came to preach good news to the poor. We thank you for all we see in the early church. We want to fully rediscover all that it meant to live in the manner of the early church. 
will lead us on the next stages of that journey. And I personally pray, Father, that you will bless this church as it embarks with courage and conviction, but with some perhaps some trepidation on moving ever more deeply into some of these areas. And let your supernatural power be there, Father, we pray. We pray for those who will rise up from sickness, who will find healing, who will find salvation, who will find community. Lord, we want you to be found. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's sing together.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you it brings light to our path. Lord, it, it helps us to know how we should walk in, where we should walk in, what life's meant to look like, what church is supposed to look like. Lord, I pray, would you seal the words that we have heard in our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit. I ask you, Lord God, we will not lose what has been planted there. And I pray, Lord God, will it bear much fruit for your kingdom and for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.